You're listening to Comedy Central. Hey, what's going on, everybody? I'm Trevor Noah, and this is the Daily Social Distancing Show. Today is February 23rd, which means it's the last week of Black History Month. And that's why, once again, my friends, I've decided to make new Black history by becoming the first Black person ever to lose a dance-off to a white guy. I tried to lose. I really tried, Bryce. I'm sorry, man. Next time. Oh, man. Anyway, on tonight's show, Roy Wood Jr. celebrates black journalists, mean tweets are destroying President Biden's cabinet, and the Republican Party is already hard at work rigging the next election. So let's do this, people. Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, this is the Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah. Ears edition. Let's kick things off with some health news. If you're watching this show while you're driving, first of all, don't do that. And second, you may wanna hold your breath for this. Hey, we all love that new car smell, right? But according to a new study, that scent could be dangerous. Researchers found the smell carries in it dangerous carcinogens. The measured high levels of the cancer-causing particles in the air and dust inside cars, formaldehyde and benzene, are used by manufacturers in carpets and leather and paints in the cabin. And researchers say drivers with long commutes are likely the most at risk. Oh, man, come on! Why are scientists such killjoys? I mean, just once, I'd like to hear about a new study that says something fun was good for you, but it's always like, oh, puppies give you gonorrhea. I mean, that's where I got mine from. But yes, apparently, new car smell is carcinogenic, which luckily for me isn't a problem because I haven't been able to smell anything in months. Yeah, oh, wait, and yeah, it really shouldn't come as a surprise that such an unnatural smell is bad for you. I mean, you'll never find something in a botanical garden that smells like a Kia Sorento. But please, we should be clear. The fact that something emits carcinogens does not mean that it causes cancer. The most dangerous thing about driving is still driving. I mean, think about it. Every single person you know has at some point in their life tripped while walking up the stairs. Everyone has. Now put that person in charge of a 4,000 pound piece of metal going 70 miles an hour. Well, that seems like a bigger problem than a smell that might make you sick in 30 years. Now, obviously, people who are driving old cars have nothing to worry about. Although their next visit to the doctor is gonna be real uncomfortable. The good news is you do not have cancer. The bad news is you're a broke-ass bitch. Now, there are treatment options, but Lord knows you can't afford any of them, you broke bitch. Moving on from new car smells to the man who's still got that new president smell, Joseph Range Rover Biden. Biden has nominated one of the most diverse cabinets ever. It's got black people, women, Hispanics, Native Americans, and even child robots. But first, Biden's nominations have to be approved by the Senate. And one of Biden's lesser known picks has run into some trouble over her itchy Twitter fingers. Consideration of Neera Tandon to lead the Office of Management and Budget is now frankly in jeopardy after more senators have come out against her. Republicans Rob Portman of Ohio, Susan Collins of Maine, and Mitt Romney of Utah all citing Tandon's past tweets criticizing Republicans. A Romney spokesperson called them mean tweets. You wrote that Susan Collins is, quote, the worst, that Tom Cotton is a fraud, 
that vampires have more heart than Ted Cruz. Uh, you called Leader McConnell, Moscow Mitch, and Voldemort, um, and on and on. There are still nine pages of tweets about Senator Ted Cruz, for example. Read them! Read the tweets! Read every single one of those tweets! Look, I'm glad to see Melania's Be Best program is finally paying off, but if tweeting mean things about Ted Cruz disqualifies you from serving in government, well, there's not gonna be anyone left to run the country. Even Mitch McConnell would be out in these streets like, uh, Ted Cruz looks like Wolverine after a bad divorce. Send. I resign. It was worth it. Regardless though, I will say it is really nice to see that Republican senators have finally figured out how to read mean tweets. Because just six months ago, whenever a reporter asked a Republican senator to comment on a Trump tweet, well then, they would say they hadn't seen it, and then jump out of a window, grab onto a ladder attached to a helicopter, and fly out of there. Now, Neera Tandon did apologize for her tweets, but I think that was her biggest mistake. If Donald Trump has taught us anything, it's that doubling down on being an asshole is how you earn Republicans' respect. She should have come into that hearing like, Senator, I never would have called you a sweaty bitch if I had known just how bad you smelled, you smelly-ass sweaty bitch. I vote to confirm. And finally, the coronavirus vaccine, AKA Zoom's worst nightmare. For many people, the vaccine is still too hard to get, which is why some Floridians are really pissed off that their governor appears to be playing favorites. The vaccine rollout in Florida surrounded a new controversy tonight. Governor Ron DeSantis is accused of playing politics with the coronavirus vaccine. A state COVID vaccination site popped up in a very wealthy, exclusive neighborhood, and many Florida residents want the governor to keep vaccine distribution fair. Listen to Governor DeSantis. Yeah, I'll tell you what, I mean, I wouldn't be complaining. I'd be thankful that we're able to do it because you know what? We didn't need to do this at all. We saw a need, we wanna get the numbers up for seniors. He struck a deal with a Republican donor of his who had developed a large, largely white Republican community and a Republican elected official. He basically sent additional vaccine to Republican voters. Okay, I know this sounds bad, but if you ask me, the most hardcore Republicans should be vaccinated first. Yeah, I said it, because think about it. They're the ones going into bars without masks and feeding each other mouth to mouth like baby birds. If we vaccinate their asses, it'll stop them from infecting the rest of us. And look, I get that people are upset that DeSantis may have given preferential treatment to his supporters, but if that's true, can you blame the man? I mean, guys, if I got extra doses of the vaccine, I would also give them to my friends. Maybe the blame should be on all those poor black people who never made the effort to be friends with Governor Ron DeSantis, hmm? I mean, maybe if you people had taken the time to say hi or ask him how he was doing or donate a million dollars to his campaign, maybe you wouldn't be in this situation, hmm? But it doesn't really matter what anybody is saying because DeSantis isn't letting the accusations get to him. In fact, now he's introducing an even more exclusive vaccine program for his top VIPs. Hey, Florida, looking for the red carpet treatment for your COVID vaccine? Then come on down to Ron DeSantis' Club Vax. 
Make the donations rain. And cut to the front of the line to get vaccinated. Club Vax offers first-rate vial service straight to your table. With sparklers. Skip the website. Skip the phone call. Skip the poor people in line. You earned this. At Club Vax, every night is two-for-one shot night. It's classy and classist. And to all the Floridians who got stopped by the bouncer. Keep this in mind. I wouldn't be complaining. I'd be thankful that we're able to do it. Ron DeSantis' Club Vax. Putting the play in pay-to-play. <laughs> all right, let's move on now to our main story tonight. Voting. It's how America speaks to the manager. And if you're about to say, but Trevor, I just voted in November. The whole point is not to have to think about it for another four years. Well, listen up. Because if you don't pay attention, you might not be able to vote again in four years. False fraud claims are now fueling GOP efforts to roll back to restrict voter access. 33 state legislatures have already introduced 165 bills to restrict voting access just since last month. Florida restricting vote by mail after nearly 5 million Floridians voted that way last year. In Pennsylvania, Republicans are trying to roll back mail-in voting expansions they passed just two years ago. In New Hampshire, they're trying to require voter ID for absentee ballots while banning the use of student IDs. In Arizona, one proposal would even allow the legislature to override the Secretary of State's certification of the electoral votes. If they're not happy with the result, they can just change it. Yes. Republicans saw the record number of people exercising their rights to vote, and they said, yo, that shit cannot happen again. And some of these proposals are really extreme, right? This Arizona law would let the legislator just override the decision of the voters. Once that happens, what's the point of even voting? Arizona's gonna have to update their stickers. But hey, I get it, I get it. I mean, Republicans have to make it harder to vote so that they have a better chance of winning elections. The only other option for them is to change their policies to appeal to a majority of voters. But come on, that's way too hard. Human beings will do whatever they can to avoid changing what they think. And this has been the story for all of human history. People don't like changing their minds. My friends, it appears that there are multiple solar systems, many more than we thought. We have to change everything. Huh. Yes? Or we could just burn you at the stake. Ah, come on, guys. So. These voter restrictions are popping up all over the country, you know, sort of like the herpes of democracy. But there's one state where Republicans are going harder than anywhere. The one that just cost them the Senate. Georgia Republicans introduced a set of sweeping new bills to limit access to polls in that state. Nearly a dozen bills that could make it hard to vote have already been introduced in the state Senate. Headline-grabbing proposal requiring two copies of photo ID just to vote by mail. Others would end automatic voter registration, the use of ballot drop boxes, and no excuse absentee voting. One bill would also end early in-person voting on Sundays, days when black churches have historically held something called souls to the polls drives to turn out their members. Mm-mm-mm. Ending souls to the polls. Whew. Maybe y'all aren't gonna have to answer the black voters anymore, but you're still gonna have to answer to Jesus. But that's right. Georgia Republicans think that if they can ban early voting on Sundays, they can kill souls to the polls, which is when black worshipers go vote together right after church. Well, joke's on you, Republicans, because one thing you should have learned about black people is they can do church anytime, any place. It doesn't even need to be on a Sunday. Shit, when I was growing up, we went to church Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, we had morning cartoons, but Sunday, we went double. 
And by the way, you gotta love how racists today have to learn so much about black people just so that they can be racist. I mean, back in the day, they could just say, no blacks allowed. But now they have to find out what black people do so that they can ban that. So now you have racists like, no souls to the poles, no one with fresh Tims, and no one who watches Insecure. Well, actually, Billy, Insecure is not on the air right now. I think all the black folk are watching reruns and girlfriends on Netflix. Of course, there's nothing new about states making it harder for people to vote. I mean, we've all seen every election. There are lines longer than the ones on Don Jr.'s mirror. But one of the new laws being proposed would make waiting in those lines even harder. There's a part in this bill that prohibits the handing out of food and water to voters. It says that nor shall any person give, offer to give, or participate in the giving of any money or gifts, including but not limited to food and drink to an elector. So people who would take water to people who were standing uh, for hours in lines, this bill would make that a crime. Congratulations, Georgia. You finally solved the issue of widespread voter hydration. Republicans are ballers, man, you gotta admit. They reduced the voting locations so that people have to wait in line for hours, and now they wanna ban people from giving out food and water to people who are waiting in line. It's like every year they make it 5% harder to vote. By 2030, the voting line is just gonna be an American Ninja Warrior episode. I mean, if you guys are gonna be evil, at least don't be so blatant about it. Instead of banning water, Republicans should hand out even more water. And then, Ban porta potties. Yeah, now you're evil and clever. Now, for the most part, Republicans aren't coming right out and saying that they're passing these laws to stop Democrats and minorities from voting. Instead, they're taking the big lie that they used in the last election and recycling it to try and win the next one. I do believe that, that voting in this country is a privilege. And, it's a right. And it's a right as well. But it ought to mean enough where you can put forth a little bit of effort in trying to cast your ballot. We're not taking away anybody's rights, but what we are asking is we, we want a fair and honest election that doesn't have all the allegations that uh, we had in this past election cycle. Those allegations, baseless claims of fraud, were promoted by Jones, who was recently stripped of a committee chairmanship following his efforts to undermine the presidential election. Oh, that's impressive, man. This guy says we need new laws to address the bogus voter fraud allegations that he spread. What we have here, my friends, is a rare real-life instance of a person both smelting it and delting it. I mean, for real, though, this is ridiculous. If you're gonna make up evidence out of thin air and use it against black people, You should not be a lawmaker. You go join the police. So that's the situation. Republicans are trying to change the rules to make it easier for them to win elections. And people who are concerned about that basically have two choices. One, you can make sure that these restrictions do not get passed, or you can get your ass in line right now for election day, 2022. Oh, and you might wanna make sure you bring your own water. All right, when we come back, Roy Wood Jr. is back with another episode of CP Time, celebrating America's great black journalists. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. February, as you know, is Black History Month, and we're celebrating all month long with Roy Wood Jr. honoring the unsung heroes of black history in another episode of CP Time. Ah. Well, hello, and welcome to CP Time, the only show 
that's for the culture. Today, we'll be discussing black journalists. And when you think of black journalists, you think of Lester Holt from NBC, or the great Gwen Ifill from PBS, or Al Roker's legendary visit to the White House, the first black man to ever shot in the White House. As I'm walking to the press room, I think I gotta, you know, pass a little gas here. Only a little something extra came out. Al Roker is the Jackie Robinson of going doo-doo in his draws. But American history is also filled with legendary black journalists whose work has been overlooked. Journalists like Marvell Cook, who in 1928 became the first female journalist at the New York Amsterdam News. Back then, a black woman writing for a newspaper was like an intelligent debate on Facebook. It just doesn't happen. But Cook used her blackness to her advantage, working undercover and reporting on issues that her white male colleagues would not, like abusive working conditions for domestic workers in the Bronx. Cook once even went undercover as a prostitute, and her courage and commitment to the job inspired me to do the same, as I also went undercover as a prostitute in my three-part YouTube documentary, Nobody Wants to Hit This, currently sitting at 13 views and counting. Another notable black journalist was Max Robinson. Max Robinson in 1978 became the first African-American to co-anchor a network news broadcast. Robinson's smooth baritone was so compelling that a racist news station once hired him to read the news with the screen blocking his face. Imagine having a voice so irresistible that even racists say, you ain't touching my daughters but you can penetrate my ears all you want. Now, despite facing discrimination, Robinson became a success and he did it in style. Legend has it that Robinson once showed up to cover a fire in Los Angeles while wearing a fur coat. That's like wearing a fishnet vest to a funeral, which is also something I did in my three-part YouTube documentary, Nobody Wants to Hit This. The New York Times called it Pitiful, bitches. And finally, Zernona Clayton. Zernona Clayton was the first black woman to host a TV show in the South, opening the door for future black women television hosts, like Oprah Winfrey, Tamron Hall, and Wendy Williams, who I will not say anything bad about because I'm not trying to get dragged by Wendy. How you doing? From early on, it was clear that Zernona Clayton was capable of greatness. Before hosting her show, Zernona would meet with a KKK Grand Dragon every day to debate him, kind of like a real life Twitter beef. But unlike Twitter, Zernona actually convinced the Grand Dragon to change his mind, leave the hate group and denounce them entirely. It was an amazing conversation and a win-win for the Klansman. He was able to stop wasting his life on racism, and now he's got an extra pair of bed sheets with a couple of fun holes. Well, that's all the time we have today. I'm Roy Wood Jr., and this has been CP Time. And remember, we're for the culture, 
You know what? Speaking of my documentary, maybe it's time I upload some of that extended footage. I've got this clip where I'm wearing some chaps. And I'm up to 15 views. I'm going viral. Thank you so much for that, Roy. All right, when we come back, I'll be talking with humanitarian Hugh Evans about his plan to end the pandemic for the entire planet. What? Oof, you don't want to miss it. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. Earlier today, I spoke with Hugh Evans. He's the co-founder and CEO of Global Citizen, which earlier today launched a recovery plan for the world, a campaign to end COVID-19 for all and kickstart a global recovery. We talked about that and so much more. Hugh Evans, welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. Thank you so much, Trevor. Global Citizen is known as an organization that is always fighting against the worst ills within society. For those who don't know, before we even get into it, what is Global Citizen? What are you actually doing and what does your organization mean? So Global Citizen is a worldwide movement committed to the eradication of extreme poverty by 2030. And we're really a membership organization. We've got over 11 million members around the world and they take action and they call on governments to make multi-billion dollar pledges to help eradicate extreme poverty within our lifetime. So they might pledge towards global health or global education. And then we hold those world leaders accountable to make sure they follow through on those pledges and ultimately those living in extreme poverty benefit most. There is a lot of money that global citizens helped raise. There are a lot of people's lives that you've helped impact, but 2020 has been a year where everything shut down, especially Global Citizens' huge events that you used to host to get people moving forward. Talk me through what your plans are for 2021 now, if people cannot be outside in big groups, hanging out together, um, raising awareness and, and, and pushing action. Yeah, so, so last year, um, immediately after the pandemic struck, we got a phone call from Dr. Tedros, the head of the WHO, and he said he wanted a global citizen to work with him and the WHO to raise urgent funding to provide personal protective equipment for frontline community health workers. And so we partnered with Lady Gaga and the WHO and we launched this campaign called One World Together at Home. And it ended up being broadcast all over the world and it raised $127.9 million to provide the for frontline workers. Workers, I'm proud to tell you today that 100% of that money has been fully dispersed and is providing PPE to community health workers all over the world now. Um, but then in response to that, we know that right now a bigger challenge has emerged, and that's the challenge of, of, of getting a vaccine to everyone on the planet. Because uh -huh. immediately after One World Together at Home, we partnered with the European Commission, and we hosted a new campaign called Global Goal Unite for Our Future. And this was really calling on the G7 nations to step up and provide urgent funding to help fund the development of a vaccine. And we were amazed because all... Uh, all seven of the G7 leaders pledged a total of $1.5 billion that went to fund both the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine as well as the Moderna vaccines. Uh -huh. and so in light of that, we now know that we have such a huge job ahead of us. So earlier this morning, um, Global Citizen Ambassador Hugh Jackman and artist Billie Eilish, together with the head of the WHO, Dr. Tedros, and the head of the European Union, and the head of your own um, government, the, pre the president of South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa, joined us to launch what we've called the Global Citizen Recovery Plan for the World. This is five points designed to really put the world back on track to tackle right. and recover better together. And so that's really the strategy for the year ahead. 
it seems like a monumental task. I mean, you know, Global Citizen is having a conversation that some people aren't even ready to have because of where developed nations are. And that conversation is, what is gonna be happening to developing nations, poorer countries who don't have the money for the vaccines, who may not have the infrastructure to roll out the vaccines, you know, because many countries are saying, hey, I know that, you know, African countries are gonna need the vaccine. I know that all over Asia, people are gonna need the vaccine, but Americans don't even have the vaccine. So when you're having these conversations, getting leaders to commit portions of their vaccine to poorer countries, how do you balance that out with the people in those countries who are saying, well, we need the vaccines. How can we be committing some of our vaccines to other people? Well, as and I think we've all seen this with the new variants that are emerging of COVID-19. This truly is a global challenge because you could get vaccinated tomorrow or your grandma or your mom or your cousin could get vaccinated. But then if a new variant emerges from somewhere in the world that's entirely vaccine resistant, what good is it? Your vaccine will become redundant. So even if you're entirely selfish and don't really care about others, it's in your own self-interest to care because this is a global challenge. And so that's the case we've been making to world leaders. And amazingly, people are starting to step up. We saw President Macron announce yesterday that he wanted to donate 5% of their vaccine load to support community health workers in the poorest nations. This morning, President von der Leyen endorsed that as well. And we're seeing other world leaders start to endorse that because this is a this is a global challenge. And you've got to remember that these vaccines, whether it's the Moderna vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, they were funded with public money. Yes. So they're actually a public good. And so that's why it's not just about us, you know, acting as a, as a gesture of charity. This truly is an act of equity and an act of justice to make sure that we actually can end the pandemic for everyone everywhere. There's no denying some of the parallels here between um, the COVID-19 vaccine and antiretrovirals for um, HIV AIDS. You know, there was a time when the medical community have de had developed all of these antiretrovirals and people were excited because they were like, wow, we can finally fight HIV AIDS. But the poorer countries who were being decimated the most couldn't afford the, the you know, the, the amount of, the, of that drug that you needed and people couldn't afford to even buy it. So in the conversations you're having with these drug companies, are they stepping up and saying, yes, we will provide cheaper versions or we will provide this at a cheaper cost to developing nations? So currently, um, both Johnson & Johnson and Oxford AstraZeneca are providing non-profit rates for their vaccines. But other drug companies such as Moderna, they're simply too expensive right now. And if you speak to some of the leading advocates across Africa who are working so hard to make sure that the supply chains reach the continent, they're extremely frustrated right now. They're frustrated by the slow pace. And as you said, it has so many parallels dating back to the 90s when HIV AIDS was ravaging across South Africa and antiretroviral drugs were available in the West, but it took years and in some cases decades for them to reach the poorest nations. Right now, there are literally 130 countries who have not received a single vaccine. And so even if we think, okay, great, my summer will open up, I'll have a vaccine and I can get back to life as normal, it's just not the case because a new variant will emerge from somewhere on the planet and that will become ultimately, eventually vaccine resistant and you'll have to start the process all over again. And so that's why we have to act as a global community. Mm -hmm. Even if we're entirely inherently nationalistic, we have to do it for the sake of everyone. You have thrown what I would argue are some of the greatest, biggest, best concerts. And I guess, I mean, it is for charity, it is for a good cause, it is to help people out, but man, those parties are amazing. 
Um, in South Africa, for instance, you had Jay-Z and Beyonce headlining a show. I mean, Ed Sheeran was performing with Beyonce on stage. You, you had some of the biggest acts. The question is, what are you preparing for after the pandemic ends? Do you have like a, what's, the, what's a mega concert to celebrate the fact that the world is going back to normal? Have you, have you even thought about what that's gonna be and how I'm gonna be involved? Well, firstly, I should say, you did an extraordinary job in South Africa. Oh, thank you. Oh, you didn't even have to bring that up. Thank you, man. No, I, I mean it. You were, you were amazing. I mean, yes, it, it was amazing to have Beyonce and Jay-Z there, but the fact that you, as a native South African, were able to host them in your own country was absolutely brilliant. And um, our plan for this year is once we drive home this five-point recovery plan for the planet, you know, once we start to see progress on ending on ending COVID-19 and can start to focus on health, education, the environment and equity, once these other points start to become online, this September, it is our dream to unite the whole planet with Global Citizen Live all over the world. So that's our goal. We know that there's a long way to go to achieve that. And that's why we're doubling down this May. It's our plan to bring the whole world just as early as May this year to focus on two issues. One, vaccine acceptance, but two, equity. Because as you said earlier, you know, even if, you know, this has so many parallels to HIV AIDS. Yes, we need right. to make sure, like we did with polio, that we can eradicate this disease super quickly. And it's going to require 2 billion doses being made available to the poorest nations this year. And to put that into some perspective, because it might seem like a lot, if we just right now allocated half of 1% of all the doses the G7 have already secured, that's enough to vaccinate every community health worker across Africa right wow. now. So it's it's not a lot. You know, this is something that we can all do. And so, yes, we need pharmaceutical companies to provide that nonprofit pricing we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. But there's one other opportunity I want to share with you. This Friday, the G20 are meeting, and they're going to be making a decision about whether to unlock $500 billion in new financing through an IMF special purpose vehicle. This is one of those rare opportunities like what happened with the financial crisis where the whole world can act as one and unlock new financing to end COVID-19. So we want the US government to step up. We want all of the G20 to step up and make this available because this will benefit the continent the most. Well, it'll be exciting to see what you get up to. Um, congratulations on all the work you've done thus far. And hopefully the next time I see you, we'll be crowd surfing at another Beyonce concert. <laughs> Thank you for everything, Trevor. You're amazing. Thank you so much, Hugh. Take care. For more information on Global Citizen's recovery plan for the world, please check out the website below. All right, we're gonna take a quick break, but we'll be right back after this. Well, that's our show for tonight, but before we go, Texas needs our help. The blackout right now isn't just causing power and heating failures, it's causing food insecurity all over the state. One organization on the ground is Houston Food Bank. They're leading hunger relief in 18 Southeast Texas counties. And if you can help them out in any way, then please donate at the link below. Until tomorrow, stay safe out there, wear a mask, and remember to please be nice to Ron DeSantis. It could save your life. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast. 